0: Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on AirTalk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. kpecc.org or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Joining us from UCSF, Infectious Disease Specialist and Professor of Medicine, Dr. Peter Chen Hong. Dr. Chen Hong, a very good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. Well, let's start first of all with where we stand on the Omicron variant, because there were computer models last week indicating that here in California last week could be the peak of Omicron cases. And then we would see a several weeks long decline, a kind of off ramp from that peak do you think that that happened based on the numbers you saw over the weekend
1: yes i mean i think we're we're seeing that and of course california is acting very differently in the on the coastal areas versus the central valley but on the and and the big population in the coastal areas of course what's driving the overall epidemiology when you look at the state as a whole but the central valley is still Buzzing with COVID and Omicron and hospitalizations and cases are still going up, but yes, in the majority of California, we've definitely encrusted we're in the right uh, direction and um, we should have a three to four week descent.
0: All right. In Los Angeles County, over the weekend, we saw uh, numbers uh, of hospitalizations for COVID-positive patients. That includes both those who came to the hospital because of COVID symptoms, as well as those who went to the hospital for other reasons and then tested positive upon arrival. That total number dropped. Uh, to 4,568 from what had been 4,700 just the day before. The numbers in intensive care in L.A. County have climbed. You remember those numbers, like deaths, tend to lag uh, the number of overall cases and hospitalizations. So we see um, that there were 774 uh, yesterday in intensive care in Los Angeles County hospitals, up five from the previous day. Uh, looking at those those lagging indicators, ICU admissions and deaths, you think we're going to continue to see those numbers climb for a bit longer?
1: I think they would probably be stabilized much faster than we thought and the reason is what you cited earlier Larry which is a lot of people are coming in um not for covid or or with covid but happen to have covid because they were screened on admission so because that group is as high as 40% depending on which medical center you look at um you know as the cases in the community go down those people will be less frequent so that the numbers of hospitalizations will actually uh, not lag too much as we originally thought. That's, however, I still, you know, I'm I'm worried about them because uh, we're still seeing nationally more than 2,000 deaths a day, and that's really in the in the primarily in the unvaccinated folks.
0: All right. Um, according to UCSF data as of last week. About 60% of COVID positive patients in the UCSF system were admitted primarily for the virus. Then 40%, as you're saying, were so called uh, with virus, uh, with COVID hospitalization. So they came in for for other things. It does seem like that number has grown because, at least in LA County, going back, I don't know, three weeks or so ago, it seemed like we had about 60% of the cases, which were people who came to the hospital for other reasons, but ended up being COVID positive. And it it looks like at UCSF, it's the reverse of those numbers now.
1: Yes, definitely. So like you said, about 40% of people in the hospital right now with a diagnosis of COVID actually came in for something else. They are not really sick with COVID per se, um, but we still have about 60% of patients being treated For the virus, Um, San Diego is similar. And like you said, uh, LA is a little bit uh, different initially, although I would uh, probably imagine that it would be at this point um, similar to all these other numbers. And to just give you a a balance in regular COVID, like Delta and before, only about 25 or 20% of patients. Uh, were incidentally found to have COVID. So going up to 40, 50 percent is really, really a a different shift.
0: And I would assume in the vast majority of those cases, people who end up incidentally testing positive upon entering the hospital, that those are largely asymptomatic cases. Is that right?
1: Yes, uh, primarily uh, asymptomatic cases, um, and they don't get any antiviral treatments. Um they just watched and they're treated for whatever they are treated for originally like uh heart attack or stroke, um, et cetera. The the only uh, kick in this is people waiting for transplants, uh, et cetera. They have to wait until they're they're negative before getting some of these treatments.
0: And do you know if UCSF is is back to doing um uh, surgeries that are that are not mandatory or essential surgeries? Or or did you ever stop doing them up there?
1: I think it was slowed down. It wasn't officially paused like we've done in previous uh, surges. Um, people are watching. I, and, you know, I think just behind the scenes, probably rescheduling these, if not urgent, but not necessarily a, a, a general uh, policy per se.
0: If you have questions for infectious disease specialists and weekly air talk guests, sometimes even more, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866 893 You can also email in questions at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location and your first name. And unlike with the Rams ticket sales, we, we accept calls from Northern California. So we, we love our listeners up to the north, 866-893-KPECC, or email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Uh, speaking of UC San Francisco, a, a very interesting study that came out last week and uh, was published in Annals of Clinical and Translational Neurology, which showed that some patients who develop new cognitive symptoms after a mild bout of COVID have abnormalities in their cerebrospinal fluid similar to that found in people with other infectious diseases. This is all to try and figure out, you know, what's going on with people who get brain fog who might have had fairly mild COVID. But, you know, weeks later, sometimes months later, still don't feel like they're thinking clearly. Now, this was a very small study, and these were people who agreed um, to, uh, you know, have their spinal fluid uh, assessed. So, uh, first of all, appreciation to them for being willing to do this for science. None of the people involved had been hospitalized for COVID, so at least they were not of that degree of severity um, but I thought this was a fascinating study, Dr. Chen Hong. What, what were your thoughts on it?
1: Well, I think it's not surprising. It really speaks to all the protean manifestations of COVID that we are still only beginning to understand. And, you know, of course, the worry is that some of these chronic symptoms last for a very, very long time and disrupts people's personal lives, their work and school. And by un- trying to understand what the pathophysiology is, we can probably intervene in a much better way to get people uh, up and running quicker. But of course, um, you know it's, it's not as well understood, but again, not surprising. This is not unique to COVID per se. Sometimes we have some uh, post-infection syndromes and many other infections just that the scope and scale of COVID is so huge, we're seeing more of this. And of course, COVID, previous to Omicron at least, with a lot of neurotropism, meaning it likes neural tissue, that's why you can't taste or smell as easily. Um, again, it's all related, and um, it really gets into many, many uh, compartments in the body, even through in a privileged site like the central nervous system, which is usually protected from a lot of of, of immune activation.
0: And is is this at all related to the immune system overactivating as a response to seeing the virus.
1: Yes, it it is all related to, we think, to immune. There are two aspects that are probably going on. One is in the acute setting, you can have the virus itself um, causing inflammation, um, you know, acutely or, or at the time of infection, which is what we see with other kinds of infections. But the kicker with COVID is that that immune activation can go on for Many, many months in some individuals, after the virus is long gone. And that is really where uh, you know, people's the the brain fog, uh, the shortness of breath, the continued uh, smell abnormalities, those continue on because of the immune activation.
0: Let's see. We have uh, Kevin in West l a. If you've got, 40% of people hospitalized with COVID, not because of COVID, does that mean instead of the 800,000 people who've been reported to, to die from COVID, that it's really 40% of, of that number?
1: That's a great question from Kevin. No, the deaths are usually typically tr- traced to whether or not it's due to COVID or not. Uh, that's the way we fill out that's cause of death in the hospital when someone dies so I think the, all the hospitals may be muddy. The deaths are generally uh, on target and very, very similar in the way we've always collected them during the pandemic.
0: One of the things I know that was looked at uh, earlier on in the pandemic, perhaps still uh, done, is is excess deaths, so to speak. So you compare how many people died, let's say, in 2021 versus... A year or two prior to try and get a handle of the effect of of COVID nineteen is is that an effective way of doing that?
1: That is one way of doing it. <clears throat> Although some people have also used excess deaths to speak to the bystander effect of COVID and other illnesses, um, like um, for example uh, heart disease, uh, you know, strokes, etc. When people may not have come or cancer. Have come to the hospital in time, and in California, for example, there are also excess that's specifically in the uh, for people with brain disease and for cardiovascular disease, not ascribed only to COVID, but because of of other reasons.
0: All right, we're talking with Dr. Peter Chen Hong. We're at 893 KPCC. Joaquin Inbrea, good to have you with us.
1: So. A friend of mine has had a mild case of the American variant, and when she recovered, she found that she had extreme trouble breathing. In fact, just sitting down and typing on the keyboard, um, she gets she runs out of breath. Um, any advice I can give to my friend?
0: All right. And, and is she also um, getting tired easily? Is she sleeping more, do you know?
1: She gets tired really easily. Um with in regards to sleep, I do not know.
0: Okay. Thank you, Joaquin. Dr. Chen Hong.
1: So Joaquin, first of all, sorry about your friend. And yes, I mean, we, I think we don't really fully understand some of the chronic symptoms that people may get after Omicron. We have a better handle on it before Omicron. And um particularly if somebody is vaccinated or not, that may moderate what symptoms they're seeing. But for shortness of breath, following an illness, I mean, there are uh, breathing exercises and a whole pulmonary rehab program that's been set up for long COVID or, or chronic COVID symptoms. So I would uh, ask your friend to, if, if it's really impacting her life, to really try to contact one of these uh, clinics that specializes in these rehab programs because they they do make an impact on people. The silver lining is that generally they do get better over time. But the question is, you know, that impact on quality of life on that journey to getting better.
0: We have a couple of questions that relate to... You know, testing positive, and then when you do follow-up tests, what what type of tests? So I'm I'm going to ask a couple, and and then you can sort of work through this timing issue with us. Lana in Brentwood says I had COVID and tested positive on an antigen test 12 days later. My doctor told me it's not recommended to keep uh, testing at that point. Uh, I'm sorry, I just lost. Uh, but in that case, how do I know I'm no longer contagious? Then we've got another question, um, that, um, comes in that's sort of, you know, similar, um, oh gosh, if I can find it here, um, well, I can't find it. I'm sorry. It was about the. It was about the um, additional testing and when to do it. So, can can you sort of walk us through that timing, Dr. Chen Hong, and what people should be looking for?
1: Definitely. So, and I know it's confusing. So, in the beginning, when you're testing, you want to be as sensitive as possible to know whether or not you have COVID and whether or not those symptoms like a cold might be COVID or not. So, you know. You, you ideally want to get close to the sensitivity of the PCR, which is a hospital-based molecular test that we do, um, which is the best indicator. But you can start with a rapid test. If that's negative and you know the five other people you had dinner with had COVID and you're negative, you you can do one of two things. One, you can repeat the rapid test in a couple of days, which is the antigen test. By that point, the viral load might get high enough to detect it. In the meantime, you protect yourself with wearing a mask when you go out and- society, protect others. Uh, the second thing you can do is just try to get a PCR test. So those are the strategies for the beginning. Um, the For the exit strategy, say you already know you're positive, you want to get out of isolation earlier. Uh, after five days, when most people will peak and not be infectious, two days before, three days after symptoms if you have it. So by day five, most people would be negative. You test at that point. You will probably don't want uh a PCR test. We know from clinical studies that PCR tests can last as long as 89 days in some folks who don't have infectious uh, virus because it just picks up fragments of RNA. That's why it's so sensitive. So fragments of molecular material that's not alive. So if you wanna exit isolation early, do a rapid test because it helps us figure out how infectious you are. If you're negative, you could. But when you're after 10 days, you shouldn't test anybody anytime because, again, no matter what tests you get, we know from in general studies that the 10 days, uh, especially for Omicron, which is much faster, uh, you're not really going to be a risk to society at that point. So positive, negative, what have you. Uh, at, at ten days, I, I wouldn't do any test, PCR or antigen.
0: All right, and I found that that other question I was folding at, Adrian and Sherman Oaks. It was it was what you just talked about. When do you suggest getting a PCR test to confirm I'm negative? And you're saying, you know, don't don't do that if if you're dealing with the symptoms. Do the do the days if you want to do the rapid test. But but the PCR test might test positive for weeks afterwards.
1: Yes, and that's the reason why the CDC stopped using PCR as a way to say if you're ready to go out in the world. And in in the hospital, we just use a time-based criterion if it's 10 days. If you're trying to get out before 10 days, uh, test with a rapid test, not a PCR, because that PCR may be falsely positive.
0: Uh, In beautiful Ohio, Gail is listening, and she says... She wonders about the safety of swimming pools. She uh, goes to a health club that has a pool, but the club doesn't require proof of vaccination. And it's not clear whether that's an indoor or outdoor pool. So I, I'm not sure if Gail is talking about whether like there's there's waterborne transmission or a matter of breathing in the same space, being close to people uh, in the pool location. Uh, Dr. Chin Hong, your, your thoughts for her.
1: Yeah, so first of all, I love oha as well, so I'm in a happy place right now. But, um, yes, just yeah, hearing so swimming about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, swimming pools generally safe if outdoors. Um, I think the main risk of swimming pools is really the locker room. So if you're protecting yourself in the locker room when you're at close range to other people in crowded areas, um, being outside in the in the swimming pool is great. If it's an indoor swimming pool, they're generally pretty open structures, um, so unless you're in the stand as a spectator, really close up front and personal with somebody else, it's generally a safe uh, endeavor because that air is constantly, um, you know, you're not going to have a lot of virus linger unless it's a really cramped setting. But outdoor safe, not very um, much transmitted by surfaces or water So um, uh, good news in that regard.
0: Kathy in Venice said, I only had one Pfizer shot. Then six months later, I got a second Pfizer shot. Do I need to have an additional two-dose regimen in the future to be fully vaccinated?
1: No, I think for Kathy, um, just getting one additional shot will be great. Um, it, It doesn't have to be exactly one, two within a month or three weeks in the case of Pfizer. I mean, you know, by the level of science, that's what people did. And that's why we do it, because we want to replicate the study findings. But in real life, your immune system is just being the more times it gets reminded and three might be the magic number, um, the better it is for the long term memory of the T cells and B cells inside of you that it will keep you away from the hospital.
0: Uh, Rodrigo says, "I've been hearing anecdotal stories of people trying to catch COVID on purpose before big events, like attending a wedding. Uh, can you talk about whether that's a good idea or not to intentionally expose oneself to COVID?"
1: Um, to Rodrigo's questions, not a good idea to try and get it. It's not like chickenpox, where most many people don't die. It's you know, with still two, more than two thousand deaths. A day and rising in this country you can tell that you you don't know what side of the coronavirus roulette you're gonna be on nevertheless um, I can think about several reasons why so on an individual level um, even getting sick is no walk in the park and I've had multiple colleagues who got sick it's like getting a bad bad flu Uh, certainly some people don't have it but many people do have bad symptoms number two you don't, we don't know, like we said early on, what kind of chronic symptoms some people may have. We had one listener whose um, friend had, you know, some chronic symptoms with, with even with Omicron. Uh, the other part has to do with protecting your family, loved ones, and community. If you live with immunocompromised older folks, even though you may not get symptoms, they might. Uh, and so you'd worry about that. And then the third is, every time there's a transmission event, there's a chance that we'll get a variant. Um, So, you know, decreasing that chance uh, is a good idea.
0: Later, we're going to be talking about a bill that would require uh, all California school children to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Already, you have some California districts who have their own requirement. There's another bill, and we'll be talking with the author of that coming up, that would allow teens under uh, the age of 18 to be able to get vaccinated without parental permission. What are your thoughts on those two bills?
1: Well, I think the first bill is probably uh, less controversial uh, in terms, well, they're both somewhat controversial, but I would think that the first one with the mandate as a requirement for schools is easier to understand because that's what we do with many other vaccines. The difference with um, the COVID vaccine currently, as Governor Newsom had originally outlined, is that uh, there would be uh, easier out with uh, religious or personal exemptions. Whereas California had been since we had those measles outbreaks like in Disneyland, et cetera. So they've tightened the grip uh, traditionally on uh, religious or personal belief as an exemption. But that was a loophole with COVID vaccines for now. So that bill is trying to bring it back up to the, just like every other vaccine. So again, to keep schools safe, uh, it is a good idea. The question is, you know, timing, of course, uh, that's always an issue. And then for the second one about uh, kids, uh, under 12, uh, not needing or over not under not needing, 18. Yeah. Under 18, sorry. Not needing parental, um, uh, consent. Uh, it probably does matter in, in some circumstances. I, for example, had, um, one of my daughter's friends, um, who really wanted to get vaccinated in high school and her parents were against it. Um, but, uh, she managed after many many months to allow them to convince, you know, to to be convinced. So I think these kinds of of scenarios are not really uncommon. And at least if if, if there's somebody who can uh, give uh, the information to that student and they understand, or that that child, I I think it may not be uh, necessarily a bad idea. Although I I you probably want to have more um, conditions or or safeguards in in that second scenario.
0: Dr. Peter Chen Hong, UC San Francisco with us. Uh, LA Unified School District students starting today are required to wear higher grade non-cloth masks. Uh, Teachers and other staff members already had had that requirement for surgical masks at the very least, uh, and it's required that they have the, the metal nose band to be able to form around the bridge of the nose to um, to keep a tighter seal on the mask. Do you support the school districts requiring at the least surgical masks with the, with the metal nose piece?
1: Yes, definitely. Right now, particularly in the age of Omicron, and we don't know what the next variant will show, um, uh, The the cloth masks don't really do Too much. Again, any mask is better than none, but the surgical mask is really kind of my basic mask to uh, room around the community, myself personally. And then you up the mask depending on the setting, um, uh, you know, like a KN95. But a surgical mask definitely uh, is the minimum I would recommend in schools right now. And the only disadvantage is not being able to be decorative or have fun designs, but you can double mask if the kid can tolerate it getting more protection and put the nice mask on the outside with the pattern. Um, There are some surgical masks with Hello Kitty and superheroes and things like that. (laughs) That's common, but maybe that might be a market.
0: Is that what you're wearing as you go around town?
1: I, I didn't get any of those, but I, I dream of having <laughs> patterned surgical masks. Uh,
0: Sophie in Laguna Niguel says, regarding herbal dietary supplements like uh, NRICM-101 developed in Taiwan and other supplements from China, have any of those been studied uh, to see if they aid in COVID-19 recovery?
1: That's a great question from Sophie. Early on in the pandemic, uh, there were some studies in China about traditional Chinese medicine, um, which aren't great on their own, but there was some, you know, uncontrolled evidence that they could be helpful in the recovery process or, you know, as people uh, recover in that trajectory. But for the other supplements, there have been very, very small studies um, from vitamin D to others that haven't really panned out in, in large, well-designed uh, clinical trials. So you know, I would think of them as the same way I think about supplements in any patient asking me about them uh, in medicine, which is, um, you know, I, if if I'm convinced that it's not harmful, I would certainly say, go ahead, you know, probiotics, for example. But if, if there is a potential risk of toxicity and depending on the dose, I'd probably be a little bit worried and also worry about drug interactions with some of the supplements. So, I guess the bottom line is talk to your clinician or your healthcare professional and your pharmacist about that before taking them.
0: All right. Uh, Let's see. We have Shelly in Studio City. I have an uncle in his 70s. He thinks the more the better. He's gotten seven vaccines. He got two in the U.S., three in Argentina, then another two back here. Is this advisable in any way?
1: It sounds like the more the better, but actually... uh, probably you're going to cap your benefit at some point. Of course, there's a risk that some people cited of what's called immune exhaustion, which is that you're going to overwhelm the immune system and it's just going to run out of steam and go on overdrive. Kind of like when you um, you know, keep a motor running for too long, it shuts down after a while. But I think there's less evidence for that. But the main um, reason not to get too many vaccines all at once at the same time is that when you get a vaccine, your immune system responds to it and starts building up. When you get the second vaccine after the first two, um, not that's not doesn't count, um, your your antibodies that are already formed just go to run after the signal that the vaccine has. So it chomps up the vaccine uh, because that's what it's designed to do. So if they have too many immune cells, which is a good thing, uh, that it's going to make the vaccine useless anyway in that way so that's why we space vaccines uh, around but and and then coming to the fourth dose that many people are thinking about the early Israeli data shows that there's no real benefit in prevention of infection from the fourth dose however just getting three uh and four will still protect you against serious disease. So Mm -hmm. again, the sweet numbers might still be three right now.
0: We have so many great questions. We'll have to carry them over to tomorrow, but I I do have one more for you. And last week we were talking with your colleague at UCSF, Dr. Monica Gandhi, and and we're talking about what the threat would be of a new variant of COVID-19 following on the heels of Omicron that would be much more deadly. And, um, She thought that that if if I'm not mischaracterizing what she said, so uh, hopefully I'm I'm being accurate. But what I took was that she thought that though that's possible, that that would be less likely given how many people have gotten sick with Omicron, which would provide some degree of immunity um, in, in this immediate period to another variant that might come up. What are your thoughts of that?
1: I agree with Monica on that statement. Uh, I think it's going to be very unlikely to get the next variant being um, more deadly. Uh, it may be as transmissible as Omicron. But if you look historically at other um, pandemics like 1918, uh, the the waves of successive uh, flu strains got weaker and weaker and the population immunity got bigger and bigger globally. So I think those two things work in hand in hand to kind of keep the virus around in as part of our flora, but not uh, killing more, you know, uh, more, more and more people over time. And, and that's how pandemics end.
0: Dr. Chen Hong, it's always so good to talk with you. We just appreciate all the great information you provide, which helps to center us in, in objective knowledge about COVID-19. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much, Larry.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAS.com, at kpecc.org or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle.